Hello, friends. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. We're going to continue to talk about camp life for incarcerated Japanese Americans during the war. For three years, they endured so much the loss of privacy and the freedom to come and go as they pleased. They lost control over their futures and even the small decisions we take for granted when and what to eat, where to shop, how to celebrate holidays and occasions. But through it all, many found ways to add beauty and joy into their lives. They cultivated the dusty land around them, practiced their crafts, and created a sense of community and belonging. Though they never should have had to, incarcerated Japanese Americans showed strength and resilience from behind fences made of barbed wire. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. 
and teachers themselves were hard to come by. Before the war, many teacher training programs discriminated against Japanese Americans, which made it more difficult for them to pursue opportunities to learn the vocation. And very few white teachers taught at incarceration camps. There was really no incentive. The jobs were located in the middle of nowhere, and they paid poorly. So camp officials began recruiting teachers' aides. These were often older teenagers or young adults who had taken some college courses before they were forced to leave for the camps. One aide, Bess Chin, remembers her job at Heart Mountain. She said, the classroom where I first started was a barrack with just benches. There must have been 30 kids in those little desks there. Their laps were the desks. Maybe they had a book to write on. The books came from the Wyoming public education system because the superintendent was from Wyoming. The first class was in this barrack room, and right next to it would be another room and noise. Just all the noise. I don't see how the teacher controlled all these kids. I suppose she managed. And they did manage. By the end of the first year of incarceration, most camps had growing education systems. They carved out the space they needed to start preschools, elementary schools, high schools, and in some cases, even continuing education classes or vocational training for adults. The government, recognizing the camp's successes with schools, seized the opportunity to step in. Camp officials instituted Americanization programs into the schools. These programs were designed to teach school children patriotism. Elementary students were photographed waving American flags, and they cut strips out of old newspapers and colored them red, white, and blue, fastening them into paper chains to decorate the walls of the recreation areas. Each morning, students started their day by singing, My Country Tis of Thee. A visitor who toured the schools at five of the camps later wrote, Their spirits are unbroken. They took the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in an assembly, and my voice broke as I joined them in their promise of loyalty. How could they say it? But they did, and they meant it. In the spring of 1942, Sunday school teacher Mary Sukamoto was sent to the Jerome incarceration camp in Arkansas. Mary, her husband, and their daughter had spent weeks in the Fresno Assembly Camp where Mary had set up a small makeshift school to teach the children there. In the evening, she often taught English lessons to a group of gathered Issei. When they were moved to Jerome, Mary was shocked at the conditions and determined to continue to do what she could to help educate and serve the people she now lived with. She took leadership over Jerome's YWCA and USO chapters and organized a group of Nisei women to serve as hostesses for the visiting soldiers of the 442nd Battalion as they traveled across the Mississippi border to train at Camp Shelby. The Sukamoto family was able to leave the camp earlier than many others, first to work in Michigan, and then when the war ended, they returned to their grape farm in Florin, California. Mary persisted in pursuing a career in teaching, a job she had become fiercely passionate about. She was one of the first certified Japanese Americans to teach in California's Elk Grove School District and spent 20 years in an elementary school classroom. After she retired, Mary created the Time of Remembrance program, 
a curriculum that uses oral stories, photographs, and other artifacts to connect students to the histories of Japanese-American incarceration. Much of her program is still used as California State Curriculum for Elementary School History. As time in the camps passed, more organization began to take shape. Schools gave families structure, but organized pastimes gave people a way to create community and normalcy. Without getting into the entire history of the sport, let's take a look at the role of baseball in the incarceration camps. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house, and then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that, and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, New customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? 
And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Sharon. The Japanese people were immediate fans of baseball when it was introduced on the island by Americans in the late 1800s. It became their most popular sport, and Japanese immigrants who settled in the U.S. quickly organized games in their new communities. In 1903, the first year Major League Baseball held a World Series, an Issei League was formed in Los Angeles. Japanese immigrants and later their Nisei children continued to create their own leagues when they were excluded from participating in leagues with white players. When Japanese Americans were forced to relocate in incarceration camps, two of the three largest camps were located in Arizona. In fact, the two camps became the third and fourth largest cities by population in Arizona at the time. The Arizona camps quickly formed baseball teams and began playing each other in an inter-camp league competition. George Omachi, who was nicknamed Hats, an incarcerated Nisei who later became a major league baseball scout, said it was demeaning and humiliating to be incarcerated in your own country. Without baseball, camp life would have been miserable. The inter-camp leagues were orchestrated by Kenichi Zenimura. Zenimura had a long history with baseball. At the time of his incarceration in Arizona, Zenimura was already hailed the Dean of the Diamond in Japanese-American baseball circles. He was born in Hiroshima, Japan, and was eight years old when his family emigrated from Japan to Hawaii. He learned baseball as a kid while living in Hawaii, and the game stuck. He began as a catcher and then moved on to managing and organizing international touring teams in the 1920s and 30s. And even though the leagues were segregated, Zanimura was one of the few who had a crossover career. He was good at his job and successfully arranged tournaments and tours for several well-known white major leaguers like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. When Zenimura was sent to Arizona with his family, he was despondent. Many of his colleagues and friends had been sent to Jerome or Rower in Arkansas, but after a few weeks, he began to view Gila River in Arizona in a different light. There were miles of desert terrain in and around the camp, and Zenimura got to work bringing his vision of a baseball field to life. He channeled a water line outside of one of the block barracks to flow 300 feet outside of the barbed wire fence to help the Bermuda grass grow in the field. Volunteers helped to dig an irrigation ditch, and soon they moved eight-foot-tall shrubs to act as the outfield fence. But Zenimura didn't stop there. He put out a call to the white residents of Butte, asking them to drop off scrap lumber and metal at the block manager's office. Zenimura wasn't creating just a baseball field. He was giving the residents of Gila River 
a stadium. Actor and comedian Pat Morita, you probably know him as Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid movies, was incarcerated at Gila River as a boy. He said of Zenomura, I remember this little old man out there every day watering the infield. One of the great sounds of joy for me was the sound of the baseball. The Canal Athletic Society was formed and consisted of seven teams from the Arizona camps. The field had dugouts to keep players protected from the elements and bleachers that were always full. Games were covered by the camp's resident-run Gila News Courier newspaper. And when the first doubleheader game was played, the event made the front page. The article said, That Zanamora baseball diamond certainly is some humdinger. Makes us remember the good old days back home. Art, too, became a regular pastime for many of the incarcerated. In the camps, nothing went to waste. And if errant nails, empty aluminum cans, driftwood, and sagebrush were available, they would be crafted into something useful or beautiful. Often both. Crafters transformed wood brought to the camp in the form of fruit crates into cribs and high chairs or serving trays for holiday meals. When the wood was too small for furniture, people carved the scraps into tiny birds. One Issei at Topaz carved intricate teapots and candy dishes out of slate stone he found around the camp. And while some of the incarcerated had been artists before the war, there were actually a handful of Disney animators in the camps. Most were hobbyists, people who were farmers and shop owners, students and fishermen. Some of the most poignant art made in the camps were images done by watercolor, charcoal, and oil paints. They showcased the insides of crowded barracks and landscapes with distant mountains behind the long, dark facades of camp buildings, smoke rising in gray clouds from the chimneys. Many intricate brooches and pins were made by women at camps like Tool Lake and Topaz, where it was easy to comb the dry lake beds for seashells. Groups of women signed up for crafting classes, where they sorted the shells, bleached them, painted them, and then arranged them to look like flowers and leaves. Often these pins would be worn as corsages at weddings or funerals as a stand-in for fresh flowers. Because the Japanese-Americans celebrated life, death, and new beginnings at camp. Throughout the series, we've been following along with Kimi Cunningham Grant's grandmother as she is moved from her home in Los Angeles to Heart Mountain as a teenager. During her time at camp, she grew older. She grew up. She was introduced to a young man, and not knowing what their future would look like, the couple got married. That afternoon, the ceremony was simple. No organ or piano, no white aisle runner, no fancy veil. It was held in the big community room, the size of which made their small band of 40 people seem even smaller. Chairs were set up toward the front of the room, where the minister and my grandparents stood. In the first row, Obachan's mother, dressed in the gray tweed outfit she had worn on the day they left Los Angeles, seemed weary. Her shoulders sagged, and her clothing was now too big on her small body. Next to her, Papa looked fine in his black suit, with his hair parted and combed carefully to the side. 
a few silver flecks were beginning to show. Uncle Kisho, Aunt Maki, and the cousins sat behind them. Some friends came as well, young women who worked at the mess hall with Obachan, and a handful of my grandfather's friends who lived with him in the bachelor's quarters. Everyone listened as the minister read from 1 Corinthians and then led my grandparents in their vows. At the back of the room, Obachan had arranged a table with some refreshments. She had purchased some cookies from the Heart Mountain Dry Goods store, as well as some fancy napkins. It was nothing like the weddings you see today, Obachan tells me. Just drinks and a little bite to eat, that's it. Later that evening, all of the guests would have headed to their assigned mess halls for dinner. Weddings, funerals, birthdays, anniversaries. Most milestone events were held in camp community centers or churches and were simple affairs. Brides wore their best dresses, or if they had time to plan, they sent away to places like Sears Roebuck for material and had a seamstress in camp make a wedding gown and veil. People became adept at improvising, at turning the things they had at their disposal into something special. And while I've talked a lot about how the incarcerated worked to make the best out of their lives at camp, we must not forget that they were places of hardship and that there were many moments of resistance and tension. Many Japanese-American families have spent decades keeping silent about their incarceration. Professor Lorraine Benai shares a little about her own family's experience. My parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles were all incarcerated at Manzanar. And then after they got released, every once in a while I would hear about camp. And they'd talk about, well, we know the Matsumoto's from camp. And the only camp I knew about was Girl Scout camp. And I knew that that couldn't fit. But you knew not to follow up and not to ask about it. So they said very little about camp. But I knew something had happened, but couldn't ask about it. I unbelievably learned about my parents' experience in ethnic studies classes in college, which were just so incredibly important, not only because it introduces people to people from different cultures, but I learned my own history, which was terribly important for me and has become actually my life's work. And even then, my parents really didn't talk about it very much. I think then, what are the enduring effects? There had to be something about my family not talking about it. Something, things just so bottled up. My mother told me that when she was allowed to leave camp to go to the interior, to Chicago, they had a group and they were told not to hang out with other Japanese Americans, not to speak Japanese. They were given a list of don'ts. That could only make you feel ashamed or, or it's dangerous to talk about other things. There wasn't just fear of danger or shame when people were given permission to take trips outside of the camps. And many places like Camps Pasta in Heart Mountain and Topaz, there were reports of civil unrest that put everyone at unease. The incarcerated were often frustrated by wage differences and food shortages. There was intergenerational friction. The Issei and Nisei didn't always see eye to eye on issues like military enrollment or resistance. Sometimes rumors would circulate about informers, people who reported camp happenings to officials or the FBI. And at the incarceration camp at Manzanar, there was a riot. 
Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When the military began to move Japanese Americans from assembly centers to Manzanar in the fall of 1942, the population, most of which had been forcefully removed from Los Angeles, was already starting to feel divided. Part of this tension predated Pearl Harbor. Some residents of LA's Little Tokyo were vocal about their distrusted members of the Japanese American Citizens League. If you remember from our previous episodes, the JACL adopted a very pro-America mindset, which spurred rumors that members had begun to ally themselves with the FBI on the Office of Naval Intelligence, acting as informants in order to bolster their personal reputations as loyal U.S. citizens. 
This made some members of the Japanese-American community wary of the JACL. Issei, in particular, objected to the JACL stance that encouraged citizens to cooperate fully with their removal and incarceration. They felt like anyone who promoted cooperation without question were traitors to their race. So with tensions already high, people grew even more discontent when they were incarcerated together. Some felt that some of the Nisei and members of the JACL were receiving preferential treatment with camp officials. Cross words and arguments often broke out between the camp's JACL members and other incarcerated men. And on December 5, 1942, JACL leader Fred Tayama was beaten by six masked men. Fred Tayama was an L.A. businessman and a JACL leader, and before he was moved to Manzanar, he was accused by many in his community of exploiting Issei fears after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. They said he charged frightened people unfairly high fees for simple services as they worked to close up their businesses and leave their lives behind. That November, Tayama was allowed to leave Manzanar to participate in a national JACL meeting in Salt Lake City. There, the group advocated that Nisei eligibility for the draft be reinstated. This soured people even further. They didn't like that their own community members were pushing to send more of their men to war. Men who would have to fight for a country that was imprisoning them. When Tayama returned to Manzanar, he was attacked in his barracks. His injuries were non-life-threatening, and even though he hadn't gotten a good look at his attackers, he pointed his finger at the leader of the kitchen workers' union, Harry Ueno. Harry was arrested along with two other suspects, and he was taken to a jail in the nearby town of Independence. Back at Manzanar, people were angry. They felt like Ueno's arrest was a sham. They felt like he was the fall guy because he had recently accused a director of stealing supplies from the camp. They thought that Tayama and the JACL were working with camp officials to silence those who spoke up. About 200 men, mostly from Harry Ueno's block unit, met the next morning to discuss what had happened and what needed to be done next. By the afternoon, over 2,000 people had gathered to listen to speeches that called for Harry Ueno's release. The crowd chose five people to present their grievances to camp director Ralph Merritt. With the five representatives in the lead, the crowd followed them to the director's office. The representatives demanded that Ueno be released, but Merritt did not immediately agree. The back and forth made the crowd restless and unruly, and Merritt getting nervous agreed to release Ueno. He had conditions, though, and asserted that the crowd must disperse and that no one was to try and break Ueno out of the camp jail after he was brought back from town. That evening, when the representatives went to verify that Ueno was back at Manzanar, an even larger crowd began to gather, and they were told by military personnel to go back to their barracks, but instead... A small group of about 50 to 75 men broke off to look for JACL leader Fred Tayama at the camp's hospital. Paul Otaki, who was in the crowd that day, said, All of a sudden, they're all uptight and they're going to go after him. They said, Let's go after the JACL leader. 
When you're in a camp, a little hatred grows. They don't think. A lot of people don't think very sanely. So I think they went after the JACL. As it turned out, hospital staff snuck him out under a gurney. With the smaller parties breaking off to look for anyone they thought was associated with the JACL and Merritt trying to negotiate with the five representatives, the crowd began to take on a chaotic energy. They threw bottles and rocks at the soldiers who gathered to control the crowd. The military police responded with tear gas to disperse them. People ran every which way trying to escape both the gas and a dust storm that had worked its way through the camp. The military police abandoned the tear gas and fired into the crowd. Jimmy Kofukuhara recalled that terrifying moment. He said, when that dust storm kicked up, we all moved. We turned to run away, but that caused commotion and the military thought we were rushing them. And that's why those who got shot, got shot in the back. We had no weapons. We had nothing. Two men were killed that evening. A 17-year-old boy died instantly, and another, just 21, died a few days later. Nine others were wounded but survived. The next morning, on December 7th, a year to the day after Pearl Harbor, martial law was declared at Manzanar, and the military began arresting the five representatives and others they felt were leaders of the riot. They, along with their families, were removed from Manzanar, and they were told it was for their protection. Block managers distributed black armbands around the camp as a way to mourn for the two dead boys. It's estimated that between two-thirds and three-quarters of Manzanar's camp population wore their armbands for weeks. They did not rise up again as an angry crowd. They wore their resistance on their sleeves long after the dust had settled. The people of Manzanar were not the only ones who challenged the oppressive orders they found themselves living under. And next time, we'll learn more about those who dissented and defied all the way to the Supreme Court. I'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or a review or sharing a link to it on your social media? All of those things help podcasters out so much. Here's Where It Gets Interesting is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder, and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. See you again soon.